Dedicated missionary service returns a dividend of eternal joy, which extends throughout mortality and into eternity. I want it absolutely clear that I declared to the world in the most straightforward language I could summon that the Book of Mormon is true. True disciples of Jesus Christ are willing to stand out, speak up, and be different. If you're not a full-time missionary with a missionary badge pinned on your coat, now is the time to paint one on your heart. God has something unimaginable in mind for you personally and the church collectively. A marvelous work and a wonder. In this church, what we know will always trump what we do not know. Missionary work is an identifying feature of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Always has it been, ever shall it be. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I am really, really excited for what I'm going to talk about today because today I'm going to try and help you resolve any concerns that may or may not have come up for you on the topic of church history. I know that you guys probably think that I'm crazy for choosing to get into this, but this has actually been something that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time because I know that in some way it affects each and every one of you. Most likely you have probably had a relative or a friend or sometimes this even happens too, a complete stranger come up to you and say, did you know this about Joseph Smith? Did you know that he did this or said that? How could you believe that he was actually a prophet? And there are many more examples of this with any number of topics that the critics like to bring up. So this leaves us to have to ask ourselves, are these things that they are saying true? And what does it mean if they are true? So today, what I want to help you guys do is kind of figure out how to navigate the sea of information that we have about church history. There's a lot out there and there's a lot said about it all, whether it be good or bad, and we just need to learn how to objectively look at all of it. What you'll notice about most topics that come up about church history is that there's usually only one detail highlighted that by itself might sound concerning, but given with context, it actually makes a lot of sense. And later, I'll give a couple examples of this to you guys so you'll know what I'm talking about. I know that for me, there have been many things that at first glance seem really difficult to explain. But when you can just learn to stop believing everything that everyone else is saying and learn how to carefully look at the sources yourself, you'll start to see that most objections that come up about something in church history are based on incomplete information. Everyone, you have to be smart about how you read history. It's really interesting to me that the smartest historians in the church, the ones who know more than anyone else in the world about church history, indeed the ones who have uncovered and examined every single piece of evidence more thoroughly than anyone else in the world about any given topic, are faithful, believing Latter-day Saints. Some people might tell you that the more you know about the church's past, the more you're going to want to leave it. And I really think that that is just total BS. The more you look at it and learn about it, the greater evidence you'll see of God's involvement in the restoration. Church history paints a compelling narrative that shows that God is capable of doing his work through flawed people. 
In fact, he chooses to do so. He chooses the weak and the simple and the unlearned to show us his power and his goodness. Really, the only explanation for how someone like Joseph Smith could have brought about a book of scripture like the Book of Mormon is that he did it by the power of God. In my mind, that's the only reasonable explanation. When you look at all the other theories out there about how the Book of Mormon came to be, they honestly sound outright crazy. It's just hilarious to me that when critics try to give some other explanation for it, they are inadvertently providing greater evidence for the divinity of this book. Seriously, when you actually look at all those theories that they've come up with yourself, when you look at them really closely, none of them stand. Not a single one. And they all do a great job of pointing out the fact that the only reasonable explanation for the coming forth of the Book of Mormon is that it was done by the power of God. Long story short though, you have to learn how to see events like this through the correct lens. So I want to show you guys how you can dive into history and let it speak for itself to paint the right picture. This way you don't have to cower away from it and be afraid of what you might find. Before we get into this further though, I want to point out that it's important to remember that there isn't going to be an answer for everything about church history. So I'm not going to try and give you guys answers that just aren't there or answers that aren't important or even relevant. If you aren't careful, you can start going down the rabbit hole of asking questions and trying to find answers to things that really don't even matter or hold any significance. And regardless of how much we do know, there's still going to be a lot of people who won't be satisfied no matter what answers they get, which usually only ever happens because they've already made up their mind about something. Like if someone has already made up in their mind that Joseph Smith is a complete fraud, you could present all the evidence in the world that clearly points to him being a true prophet and it still won't persuade them. Only a witness from the Holy Ghost can do that and he can't make his way through a thick skull, guys. Believe me, it won't work. The only way that God can teach you something is if you're willing to be wrong. You have to be willing to accept the fact that you actually might not know everything. Okay, so what I want to do today is help you see both views of a particular subject, both from a critical standpoint and a faith-filled standpoint, learn to do your own research and ask your own questions, and then come up with your own conclusion. This is a formula that you could apply to any topic about church history. So the next time you hear something that initially might be kind of shocking to you, you can step back and go through this process yourself so that you can come to your own conclusion about something before you just mindlessly jump on board with what everyone else is saying. And that goes both ways. Just as much as I wouldn't want you to believe a critic without giving it more thought, I also wouldn't want you to automatically believe a believer without first going through your own process of discovery either. Okay, so we all know that there are some subjects about church history that are hard to hear or talk about, and I'm not here to criticize anyone or judge someone else for seeing something differently than I do. I know that a lot of people might see certain things about church history and the church in general differently than how I see them. And that's okay. I personally try and approach these things through the lens of faith, and I try to give prominent people that have played major roles throughout the history of the church the benefit of the doubt. I think this is a really good rule for anyone investigating the church. And I really can't blame anyone for choosing to step away from the church either. I think that their concerns and feelings are valid, and they don't deserve judgment from any of us. I honestly applaud them for choosing to ask their own questions and using their agency the best way that they know how. Although, if you have left the church and you feel that you need to turn around and attack or criticize everyone else in it, you've lost a lot of my respect. 
you're not really proving your case very well in my opinion and it's just straight up not classy to demean or belittle others because of their beliefs so let's just let bygones be bygones and regardless if you believe in jesus or not the golden rule is a pretty good rule for anyone to live by so if you have heard about something that has happened in the past and it made you second guess a lot of things just know that that is normal I'll confess that in the past, there have been many things that have come up about certain things within the church that have caused me some doubt. But with time and a lot of prayer and through my own painstaking research, every single one of those doubts have been resolved and it just feels amazing. It feels so amazing to think that I have been exposed to everything. Guys, there is nothing that you can tell me that I haven't already heard. And my faith has only become stronger because of it. So let's get into a couple of examples of tough church history topics and learn how we can allow these things to build our faith rather than burn it down. Okay, the first one that I want to introduce are the different accounts of the first vision. If any of you have no idea what I'm talking about, the account of the first vision that Joseph Smith penned in 1838 and is in our scriptures in Joseph Smith history, that's only one of nine accounts that we have. And for a lot of people, this is the only account they are familiar with. And so when they read the different accounts, it shakes their faith a little bit because there are some things in them that differ from each other a little bit. And of course, these differences are some of the low hanging fruit that the critics just love to pick at. So let me give you a couple of examples of this and we can talk about why these differences exist and why they are significant. And if any of you want to go and read these for yourself, you can find them on the church's website. And along with that, in the church library app, there are gospel topic essays that talk about different controversial topics from church history. These are some really good resources to turn to if you have any questions. Along with the different accounts of the first vision, there are essays written on topics like polygamy, violence in the early church, the Book of Mormon translation, race in the priesthood, etc. So go check those out if you haven't already. Anyway, so if you read the different accounts of the first vision, you'll find that some of them say that there were angels there along with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. One of them talks about a pillar of fire being there. Some say that Joseph was a 14-year-old, and others say that he was 16. And there's one where it sounds like Joseph said that only one being appeared to him rather than two. Four of the accounts were written by Joseph himself, and the five other accounts were secondhand accounts, meaning someone else wrote down what Joseph had told them about the first vision. And all of these accounts were written between 1832 and 1842, so a span of 10 years. Arguments have been made in the past that because the accounts differ and because there are some contradictions, then they must be fabricated. Initially, this argument kind of makes sense. Like, if the story is true, then just get it straight, Joseph. But when you really think about it, it wouldn't make any sense that every retelling of the first vision story by Joseph Smith would be exactly the same. Of course they would be different. I mean, imagine retelling something that happened to you at different points in your life and to different audiences. Every single retelling of your story is going to be a little bit different. And you may even contradict yourself. Not because you're making it up, but because naturally, at different points in your life, you're going to have different reasons for telling it, and you're going to tell it differently based on who you are telling it to. In some cases, you might leave out some details of the story, and in other cases, you might add those details. So let's say, for example, that you broke your leg doing some stunt. How is your retelling of the story going to differ between your parents and your friends? Of course, with your friends, you're probably going to tell them all about this stupid thing that you're trying to do that led to the broken leg. 
and you're gonna give them every detail because that's just what you do with friends. You embellish the story even if you broke your leg doing something really dumb. But when you tell your parents, because you don't wanna get into trouble, all you're probably gonna say is, er, uh, I just fell down. Now this obviously doesn't apply directly to Joseph's first vision accounts, but it goes to show that just because something is retold differently doesn't mean that it didn't happen. I mean, what do you make of the Gospels in the New Testament? There are four different accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, but they each retell his story a little differently. There are even some contradictions between the Gospels, but that doesn't mean that they are wrong. It just means that we need to understand the writer's intentions and who the intended audience is. As a matter of fact, it's because we have different accounts of the same stories that we are given a greater view of the story itself. All the accounts with their different details provide us with more of the story than we would have if there was just one account. This is exactly how it is for the first vision accounts too. Each account has some details that other accounts don't have, which give us a better view into not only the first vision, but also into Joseph's life and the world that he lived in. Just like with the Gospels, each account is written to a specific person or audience, so Joseph caters what he says about the first vision to whoever he is telling it to. And this is a really important thing to keep in mind when you read the accounts. If you guys really want to dive further into this, I invite you to look up the accounts yourself and go read them, keeping in mind what we have just talked about. It really brings the first vision to life when you read them all. Okay, let's move on to the next topic. This next controversial topic is, well, uh, it's controversial for a reason. And we could talk ages about it here, but I just want to highlight the major points. So if any of you are aware, there was a priesthood and temple ban on black Africans between 1852 and 1978. This means that regardless of personal worthiness, anyone of black African descent cannot receive the priesthood or participate in temple ordinances. This obviously involves a very long story which spans generations, so there's a lot to unpack here. Before I attempt to do that though, I think it's important to point out that in the early days of a church, like in the first two decades of its existence, there were black men who were ordained to the priesthood and there's no evidence that suggests that any black men were denied the priesthood or temple blessings during Joseph Smith's lifetime. In fact, the early church was considered progressive in this regard compared to the rest of the world. Joseph Smith never made any distinctions between skin color and all were welcome to come and fully enjoy the blessings of a gospel. The Book of Mormon even teaches that all are alike unto God and that he invites all to come unto him and partake of his goodness. And he denies none that come unto him, whether they be black or white, bond or free, male or female. And it seems that Joseph really embraced that idea. In this era of American history, however, there was a lot of racial division going on, even within Christianity. Slavery still existed, and within American culture, there was this long-held belief that blacks were an inferior race because of the curse of Cain. This scripture passage had long been misinterpreted by early Americans to create this belief that black skin was a curse put on Cain, and therefore black Africans were his descendants and were part of this curse. For early Americans, this is what justified slavery and their view on black Africans, and the church existed within this culture. It's really a disturbing thought that scripture was used to support this erroneous belief, and because of this, racial distinctions were customary among white Americans. This may sound really terrible to us today, but this really was a widespread belief at the time, and there were many good-hearted, noble Americans who may have held this belief to no fault of their own. 
Such ideas were even believed among the great leaders in America, like Abraham Lincoln. I know that sometimes we like to see everything in black and white, but things are often a lot more complicated than that because people themselves are very complicated. So yes, there were most likely many good, honest people who saw blacks as inferior or may have even had black slaves. That's not to say that everyone was pro-slavery. In fact, Joseph Smith openly opposed the practice, but it was so common within the culture that it was never viewed as something that was morally wrong. So we have to keep all this in mind as the story unfolds. Simply, the church existed within this culture that saw black Africans as an inferior race. And so things like racial segregation, slavery, racial discrimination, and even laws prohibiting interracial marriage were widespread within the United States. And even though this was the culture that the church was born into, church members initially resisted the American racial culture. In fact, many outside observers felt that the church was too inclusive of people of color. But what we will see is that they eventually began to adopt the same attitude towards blacks that pretty much everyone else had. So after Joseph Smith is murdered in 1844, the leadership of the church is then placed on Brigham Young's shoulders. And Brigham Young is a prophet for eight years before he announces that men of black African descent can no longer be ordained to the priesthood. They were still allowed membership in the church through baptism and receiving the Holy Ghost, but for some reason, they were no longer allowed to hold the priesthood or obtain temple blessings. Early on, however, along with Joseph Smith, it seemed that Brigham Young also embraced this idea of full racial integration and equality. Three years after Joseph Smith's death, so five years prior to his announcement, Brigham Young was recorded praising a black man who had been ordained to the priesthood by saying, we have one of the best elders, an African, and that man was Q. Walker Lewis. Brigham was also quoted in saying that we don't care about the color, which he said preceding his praising of Q. Walker Lewis. So what changed between this time and the time when the priesthood ban was put into place? It seems that Joseph never held these views that were so common at the time about blacks, and that, at least for a time, neither did Brigham. So why did he make this announcement about blacks in the priesthood? And was this announcement based on revelation, or was it solely because of an opinion held by Brigham Young? Well, first, there are two things that happened in 1847 that are likely to have led to Brigham Young instituting the priesthood and temple ban. These events sparked concern in him and other church leaders, which may have led to a more aggressive approach to racial segregation. The first occurred when a black man named William McCary began practicing his own corrupted form of polygamy and professing that he was a prophet, all of which eventually led to his excommunication. The second happened when Enoch Lewis, a faithful and priesthood-bearing black member of the church, married a white woman and had a baby with her. The reason this event was concerning to church leaders was because of another erroneous belief held by the society at the time that originated with scientists. They taught at the time that if whites and blacks had children together, then their children essentially would be infertile, which is an idea that was accepted by society as a whole. So basically, these scientists used the same reasoning that says, if two animals of a different species mate, let's say, for example, a horse and a donkey, then their offspring will not be able to reproduce, which in this case would be a mule. I know it sounds really silly to us now, but that's really how people in this day saw it. Interracial marriage was never a thing before this, so this was a foreign territory, and even experts at this time couldn't have been further from the truth. It's also important to note that almost every state up until the 1960s had laws against interracial marriage. So for a long time, it was a commonly held belief that blacks and whites shouldn't mix, and that if they did, then the purity of their races would disintegrate. 
even the most progressive people at this time were even saying that the races should still be separate even though they were equal. So different views like this floating around that were commonly held beliefs by virtually everyone could explain this switch in mindset that Brigham Young had toward black Africans. Secondly, it's important to note that Brigham Young never claimed that God inspired him to create the band. So that answers that question. His assertions are only based on the theological rationale from the curse of Cain and the curse of Ham in the Bible, which were erroneously held views by all Christians of the time. For whatever reason, he found that if those stories applied to his day, then it must mean that blacks were not eligible to hold the priesthood. Of course, there is no evidence in those scriptures that supports that idea, but that, combined with what happened on those two occasions in 1847, are likely what led Brigham Young to institute the priesthood and temple ban. So then does all of this mean that Brigham Young just made a big mistake? Yes, absolutely. Since then, the church has disavowed any belief asserted in this time period about black Africans based on false interpretations of scripture. And Elder Quinton L. Cook has recently explained that, quote, Brigham Young said some things about race that fall short of our standards today. Some of his beliefs and words reflected the culture of his time. There's still so much more to the story that I could get into here, because as you know, that priesthood ban wasn't lifted until 1978. But that will require a lot more time than we have today. So what I will do is briefly talk about why it mostly took so long for that ban to be lifted and what that means. The first thing that we have to acknowledge with this is that church history is made up of a mixture of both the human and the divine. There are periods throughout church history where God's hand is written all over it. And there are other periods where he just kind of lets church leaders figure out things for themselves. He lets them use their own agency along with seeking revelation as how to move forward. The second thing that we have to acknowledge is that because God leaves a lot of things to figure out for ourselves, we have to leave room in the church for human infallibility. This means that prophets and other church leaders are bound to make mistakes. God will not infringe upon man's agency. The whole point of the plan is so that we could choose for ourselves. And this includes church leaders figuring out how to lead the church. So I ask you, what does it look like when the Lord guides his church through prophets while at the same time respecting their agency? And does this leave room for error to happen? Well, looking back, it might look messy. In fact, it is messy because errors have happened. But that doesn't need to mean that church leaders aren't inspired. I would even say that they are inspired in pretty much every decision that they make on behalf of the church but they are also left with a lot of things to figure out on their own. God doesn't want puppets. He wants humble men and women to seek direction from him while at the same time demonstrating some faith and making some leaps. I think we all agree and believe in this idea that church leaders are capable of making mistakes, but it almost seems like we forget that when they actually do make a mistake. Elder Uchtdorf said in the 2013 General Conference talk, to be perfectly frank, there have been times when leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. God is perfect, but he works through us, his imperfect children, and imperfect people make mistakes. Brigham Young has even said, can a prophet or an apostle be mistaken? I will acknowledge that all the time, but I do not acknowledge that I designedly lead this people astray one hair's breadth from the truth, and I do not knowingly do wrong, though I may commit many wrongs. So if you look up the story about how the priesthood ban was lifted in 1978, and all the events leading up to its removal, you'll see that it wasn't until all the apostles were unified in their asking for revelation about this issue that they got the revelation. 
Prior to this event, many church leaders questioned the ban, but weren't sure about how to go about removing the ban because they assumed the ban was put into place because of Revelation. You guys have to keep in mind that none of them have the records that we have today. They didn't have any sort of explanation as to why the ban was put into place, so for a long time, they didn't question it. It wasn't until they were all willing to accept that Brigham Young may have been wrong when he put it into place, and that they were all willing to accept whatever answer they may have received about it, that they got the clear answer from the Lord that the ban needed to be removed. It's really an incredible story when you read about it. And the coolest part to me about it all is that it shows how God works with us. It shows how he works through us. He can't just fix all of our problems, even if those problems were caused by the mistakes of others. He gave us all a brain for a reason, and he wants us to use it. And that includes the men and women who lead the church. So yeah, it's really unfortunate that it took them so long to figure out what to do. But to me, it's a testament to God's mercy and goodness. If you guys want to know more about this topic or any other church history topic, there is a great podcast called Church History Matters, and the hosts are Scott Woodward and Casey Griffiths, who are both church history scholars at BYU. I got a lot of the stuff that I talked about today from them, but they go into much, much more detail about every church history topic, and they give every topic the time and attention that it deserves. Really, guys, go listen to them if you have any concerns about church history, because one by one, they will lay them all to rest for you. I hope that at least now you'll know how to do your own digging and resolve your own concerns rather than blindly believe what everyone else is saying. You guys, you are responsible for coming up with your own conclusions and that's going to involve you doing a lot of your own research and asking and pondering. Just because you hear something about church history from somebody else doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And if it is true, there's probably much more to the story than what they are telling you. I promise that you guys have nothing to be afraid of with church history. The more you know, the greater testimony you will have that God is leading his church. That's all I got for you guys today. Thank you for listening to this one. Remember that you guys are awesome and that you've got this. I'll catch you next time. Peace.